Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, welcome to the afternoon here on Ausbiz Australia's only live streaming business and markets channel. Great to have your company for the next hour for the call. 10 stocks that you suggest us to uh, take a look at. I put them uh, to an expert panel for their adjudication on the day where the markets have had a bit of a bounce back today, led by the uh, the miners and the banks. So uh, market going okay today, but we've got some uh, terrific stocks to look at today. And in particular, some great questions that you've attached to them as well. I love it when uh, people not just say, hey, can you get the guys to um, uh, take a look at a particular stock, but then give the reasons for it and ask questions um, which uh, really apply to your particular portfolio. And uh, got a few of those today, which I always love. Let's bring in the panel today. And what an expert panel. We've got Scott Phillips from Motley Fool. Scott, good to see you. In fact, doing a bit of research on some of the stocks. Thank you to Motley Fool for being um, <laughs> so up to date in your coverage. A couple of them are, oh, Motley Fool covered them in the last two days and one of them in the last hour. So it's been very helpful indeed. Thank you for that. Um, very good, Koshi. Our pleasure. <laughs> and uh, Kevin Robinson from uh, Team Invest joins us as well. Kevin, how's your week been so far? Busy. We've, uh, we've moved house, so I think I've done more exercise in the last five days than I did throughout the entire lockdown. <laughs> All right, well, uh, good that we've um, uh, been able to distract you away from that, and we're a good excuse for you to uh, down yes. tools for an hour or so. All right, let's get straight into it, and uh, our stock of the day, and uh, one which is... Uh, uh, a bit of a regular here on the call, uh, Technology One, the big technology group with profits coming in at the top end of company guidance, up nearly 20% for financial year 21 to the end of September. Uh, the company saying the result was underpinned by solid growth in its global software as a service product. Look ahead management says it's on track to hit its medium term goal of $500 million in annual recurring revenues by FY26. Shareholders set to get a healthy 10% uh, or 10 cent uh, per share dividend. Uh, checking in on how the shares are faring during this uh, at this particular session, um, basically line ball at twelve dollars forty seven. Um, but Kevin Robertson, um, I think technology uh, one has been a bit of a favourite of uh, Team Invest over a number of years as well, hasn't it? It certainly has. We we've considered it a wealth winner for quite a while, and uh, they regularly. Uh, under-promise and over-deliver in terms of results, which is great. Uh, and they've got very stable growth, earnings growth. Um, and, f- well, for us at the moment, certainly for me, and I'm, I'm a shareholder, uh, for me, uh, the 
price is, is a bit too high at the moment. I'm always waiting for something to happen and the price to come down so I can buy some more. I, I remember an interview with, uh, with um, Warren Buffett and the questioner led with uh, that he has too few Berkshire shares and that's how I feel about, uh, about Technology One. I've got too few of them. Oh, okay. So, so you're waiting for a, what level should, does it need to come down to uh, uh, for you to add? At this stage, it probably needs to come down to about, I'd say, about nine dollars. Wow, that that's down a third. Yes, I know. That's a, that's right. that's a problem. I might I might start looking at it at ten and maybe maybe start you know easing into it. But yeah, yeah. Okay, um, Scott, what do you think of Technology One, the result and the stock at the moment? It's one of the it's Brisbane based, isn't it? Mm. it? A great performer, but has tended to go under the the radar a little bit of of the you know the sexy tech stocks. Koshi, that's such a really important point, mate. This is one of the businesses that has just continued to do a wonderful, wonderful job for years, like years and years. And look, it's under the radar from a from a media coverage perspective, at least not here at Osbis, but uh, the mainstream media, uh, under the radar a little bit because it's not exciting. It doesn't get the headlines, doesn't get the clicks. It's not particularly super exciting from a business story perspective, but the results have been great. I guess that's the challenge, right? They're providing government, mostly government services uh, or software services to government, I should say. And during that space, you're not exactly going to get a whole lot of investor excitement jumping on the hot new thing. It's not going to be a meme stock anytime soon. You're not going to have a lot of consumer engagement like a buy now, pay later player. But the results have been phenomenal. I completely agree with Kevin. Um, look, tough tough crowd today. The shares down three and a half or so percent on the back of what looks, on the, as, as you say, top end of guidance for their profit growth. The SaaS revenues are going really, really nicely. The only thing I would say, and I will agree with Kevin entirely, unfortunately, is paying 56 times earnings for this business is asking a great deal. Now, as you say, under the radar at a top level, the flip side, those who own it are super loyal shareholders. And so this is one that's always had a premium PE, arguably for much of its life has deserved that PE because it keeps getting it done. But I don't know how you pay 60 times earnings for technology yeah. one, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, I, you know, again, you know, what do you predict? What do you look at? Again, it's not the company's follow up when the shares get too high. It's investors getting a little bit carried away, I think. I don't blame them for looking for quality. I don't blame them for looking for, you know, reliability, dependability. That's all true for tech one. You just can't pay 56 times earnings for a business that doesn't, isn't going you know, to double anytime soon. Um, and again, that's a high bar, but if you're paying 56 times earnings, it's almost what you're expecting. Remembering the market average is probably in the teens, maybe the high teens at the moment. Um, you're paying, you know, three-ish times the average PE. It's not worth that much, unfortunately, so I can't buy it at the current price. Like Kevin, I, you know, again, you say you're know, down a third, like, you know, we're predicting a fall of that. It's not not that at all, but yeah, you'd want a PE 30-something probably in front of it. Probably, I mean, I'd love 20-something, maybe you never get that, but um, just way too expensive right. for me. And, and even though, even though I, I um, criticise Kevin a little bit, going, I have to wait for it to get, drop a third, it was down at those levels in June. So yeah. Not, yeah. not so long ago that it was uh, that it was down, what, around that 9.50 mark. Look, I mean, the thing is, it's really possible for these things to be volatile. It's also possible that people pay up for a long time. So saying I wouldn't buy it unless it was down there, it may never get back there, and that's okay. It's completely okay to, to give up, uh, come companies a pass on, on a whole lot of bases, right? It doesn't mean you're not going to make money. It doesn't mean you can't go off from here. On the balance of probabilities, you look at something like this, to use that legal term and say, well, am I likely to be, be a market-beating return from here? You've got to get growth 
in the profitability. You've got to hope PE stays roughly the same level. If the PE falls by 20%, there's not much the yeah, 20 points, sorry. There's not much the profit can do to keep up with that. And that's the yeah. challenge when yeah. you're yeah. starting at these okay. sort of high PE headwinds, unfortunately. All right. Okay, fair enough. Uh, let's get into the stocks that uh, you want us to take a look at. And the first one, Kevin from Mel Antiotech. Mel says, I was hoping to discuss on the show. I understand it's involved in antigen rapid tests, currently awaiting approval from the TGA to be supplied in Australia. I've read that they've got a distribution agreement in Greece already. Once this kicks off, could the price of the uh, shares rise? Uh, rapid antigen testing, obviously a hot commodity in Australia right now. However, I'm also conscious that there are numerous other rapid diagnostic tests approved here in Australia. Uh, last quarter um, showed some good progress in getting the tests approved uh, overseas, but also you know, a couple of new independent directors, some, uh, a couple of new executives as well. They've had an active six months or so, Kevin. And their technology uh, also, aside from the antigen, uh, extends to other things as well. Like uh, it, it's basically, as I understand it, coding technology. Um, and it, they're, uh, it's got applications in lithium-ion batteries, of course, which uh, is one of the new, new hot things at the moment. Uh, the short answer to the question, I suppose, is uh, if, if they get approved and if it takes off, yes, the, the share price could take off. Uh, from our point of view, as you'd be aware, they, they've never made a profit. So uh, we, we, we'd be waiting for some history of profit and profitability um, and good profitability. And of course, if you look at, at the um, shares outstanding, those have increased as well. So obviously, the company has been uh, asking shareholders for more money to tip in for when one day they become successful, which it sounds like good technology. I hope they are successful, but uh, it's not really a team invest company yet. We'll keep right. an eye on it. Okay. Scott? Ask, uh, over the last couple of days from some of our viewers who didn't like my view on Brainchip when I said, look, it's very hard to say it's investable when you can't look at the size of the potential revenue, the size of the potential profit, how quickly that might come and what happens in the meantime to justify what in Brainchip's case is a billion-dollar market valuation. And I think what you really need to know, and Kevin kind of alluded to, is what sort of investor are you? What are you looking for? And here's the here's the challenge. Even if Antiodiagnosis or Antiotech, as they call themselves these days, has the right product, even if it can capture some market share, even if there are sales to be had and eventually profits to be booked, and those are lots of ifs combined, then you've got to work out how much do I pay? How long do I have to wait for those numbers to hit? And what represents a market-beating investment? And this is the real challenge, I think, for, for many investors, particularly in this space where there are small you know, really kind of exciting, potentially exciting businesses. You say, well, they're not all going to be successful. One, two, three, maybe five of them are. And then maybe 10, 15, 20 of them fail. And trying to work through, okay, well, how do you go from an exciting idea, maybe some sales, maybe some sort of glimpse of wider acceptance through to, okay, but how much do I pay for that? What would it, What is a market-beating share price? What is overvaluation? What is undervaluation? It's really, really difficult. And so people like me and probably Kevin, I won't speak on his behalf, but sometimes you look at that and go, it might be great, but I can't put a price on it. If I can't put a price on it, I can't come on Osbys. I can't go to my members and say, yes, I think you should buy it on the balance probabilities. It's market beating because that's a really, really, really mm. high bar. It's a big test. So that's a that's a big preamble to say, like Kevin, I like the technology. I like the fact they're trying to do some really cool stuff. We can't know where this is going to go from here. How long does it take? How much money do they make over what period of time? For how long? 
before competitors potentially nip at their heels or a better mousetrap is designed. And you, if you can't put an original probability on those questions, it's really, really hard to say, yes, it's worth buying at the current price. It's just, it's really hard. This is this was a 10 cent stock 12 months ago. Then it was 45 cents and it was 20 cents. At each of those points, you could have pointed to the, the future of this and said, if it does this, then it will be worth X. When it can go up, up, you know, four X, then four by half. It's, yeah. a, it's a reminder of how yeah. difficult this sort of thing is. So um, all of that's a big wind up to say, I'm giving it a miss. It's very hard to probabilistically say, I think this is a market beater. If you can't say that, you're best off just giving it a miss and moving to the next idea. Yeah, and I, I was following your discussions on um, on so- social media about brain chip, and and I, th- I think it's worth making the point is that everyone's different, and yes, you can be passionate about a company um, and emotional about it or have very fixed views. But that doesn't mean the next person has. And sort of the beauty of the call is we get all of these very different investment philosophies and strategies from our, our experts. And that's for us to, uh, to follow, acknowledge, maybe sort of hang on to a strategy that suits yours of a particular, like a team invest strategy is very different to a Motley full one. And that's great. Uh, the whole idea of this show is to make you think and and expose you to different thoughts of uh, and opinions. But you know, bottom line is then it's up to you, the individual investor, to make the right decision for you. So uh, some of it got a bit heated, uh, Scott. I was going to come That's to your defence, but That's I thought, no, nah, you're big enough and ugly enough to look <laughs> yeah. after yourself. You don't yeah, need good, me good worrying strategy, in. Mate. <laughs> oh, you, you don't need the grief either on social media. I'd say out of those wars as well. Look, and, you know, and the, we won't spend too long on this, but it was a really productive conversation for the most part. People saying, look, I love this thing. I think it's going to be fantastic. I'm like, great. Is that, yep. If that's good for you, then, then wonderful. If that's your style, if that's what you're prepared to do, then absolutely knock yourself out. I don't have your level of conviction. Um, Andrew Page, a regular guest and my, yep. my uh, podcast co-host from Strawman, who says, you, you can borrow someone's stock idea, you can't borrow their conviction. And if you haven't got the conviction, you can't, particularly in my position and Kevin's position and yours, Koshi, we can't say, yes, absolutely, you know, abandon all, abandon all conservatism, just go on the flyer of what if it, maybe it makes some money, and if it does, yeah. then I'll look silly if I don't say go for it. I say that every single company in the ASX, just in case they make money, I've got to kind of wind it back a couple of dials and say, knock yourselves yeah. out, go and buy Brainship if you want, go and buy Antio if you want. I've got to be able to say, look myself, my members, your viewers in the face and say, this is why I thought it was good value at this price on this date. If I can't do that, I have no business saying, yeah, go and buy it. Yeah, if you've got high conviction, you want to put a little bit of, uh, I I call punting money, uh, into these sort of stocks, go for life and have a bit of fun. Life's not meant to be boring and have boring sort of solid stocks the whole time. But, uh, yeah, matter of degree. All right. um, That in Team Invest as well, that uh, all of us have our our high risk, you know, our our small high risk section that we, we invest. So, yeah. Kevin, I can't believe that. I don't (laughs) believe that in Tina. Okay, give me, give me one of your high-risk stocks in your portfolio. One of my high-risk stocks, which one of my friends in Team Invest always gives me a hard time about, is not a listed one. It's uh, they're raising capital for hot sauce. So it's an Australian company that is uh, manufacturing hot sauce, and they sell it on Amazon and a few other places. What Bunsters? yeah, you know them. Yeah, yeah. Oh. I invested a small amount in that, and and various of our team investors say, "How's your hot sauce going?" <laughs> <laughs> I Great. keep threatening to bring the hottest to one of our meetings so they can try it out. Yep, uh, fabulous founder, um, yep. who's who's just terrific. Lover. We did her as a case study. 
on my small okay. business show about four years ago. Um, and we've had her on the Startup Daily show here on Ausbiz as well. Big fans of her. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, good on yeah. you for, for helping. I, I love helping sort of good Aussie founders out as well. All right, let's get, get back into it. Um, Gary wants a view, Kevin, on Mount Gibson Iron, the, uh, uh, the Australian iron ore producer in the Kimberley um, and Midwest of uh, Western Australia. Gary says it's um, had a, a steep downward trend lately, much more than the other iron ore producers. What do you think about Gibson? Yes, well, obviously from a team invest point of view, as a, as a pure iron ore play, um, it, it, it'd be un, unlikely to come up on our radar. We have had a couple come up. Um, in this case, uh, the figures, you know, the return on capital, return on equity is lower than our 10% that we would require. Um, and the stability of uh, earnings in particular is too low for our filters. So the earnings are all over the place, as you can imagine. Um, debt is good. They've, unusually, I think sometimes for a mining company, they, they're actually uh, low debt. Um, so, and the PE is uh, 7.4 is fairly low, is, is our calculation. Um, so I'd have to say it's not one of ours, but again, it's, it's like Scott says, if you do think it uh, it has value, and if you if you want uh, to take take the punt, um, you know, then that's that's that may be your investing style. Sure. For us, it doesn't make a steady enough profit. At least it is making a profit, though. Yeah. Um, Scott, what do you think of Mount Gibson? That that's a pretty ugly um, chart from the middle of the yeah. year, but that's how far iron ore prices have fallen. They basically halved or a bit more in just five or six months, haven't they? So all of the iron ore producers look like that. Um, what do you think of Mount Gibson? And is it the bottom of the iron ore market? Well, who knows? So it's a tough one, Koshy, isn't it? Look, here's the challenge with any miner of any commodity. They are a leveraged play on the commodity price itself. And the reason is because there's costs underpinning all of that stuff. So when the iron ore price or the gold price or the copper price goes up, profit goes up even faster. When the iron or copper or gold price or anything else falls, profit falls fast because your costs don't change. And so you, you're, you're a leveraged play, you're a magnified outcome. Um, the higher your costs, of course, the bigger that leverage. So as you say, the, the real question for investors, if you want to take a punt, um, you missed the opportunity to, to call Kevin's investment spicy, by the way, Koshi. So I'll throw that in for you, mate. You can use that one later. Okay. Uh, the, uh, <laughs> the, challenge with, the challenge with this is, you know, is it the bottom? I don't know. If and when it is, Matt Gibson will probably do better on the upside than the others because it does worse on the downside. Mm-hmm. I, I said, I, I don't have in your program, Koshi. I've actually bought a small fortescue shell. Uh, for the first time ever, I bought an iron ore miner. Uh, and I did that because I think we are somewhere near the bottom-ish of the range of likely prices. And I'm, I'm deliberately catching that. I don't know if it's the bottom. I'm not trying to pick the bottom. We know the all-in costs are at 60 bucks a tonne. If iron ore selling for 80, 90 bucks a tonne, there's only a limited amount of downside that's likely to be long-term in that space. And then potentially more upside if and when the price rises. I think Fortescue was cheap enough to buy. Matt Gibson's probably in the same space. Um, the challenge as, the risk I think is if the price keeps falling, Matt Gibson continues to be hurt a lot more than Fortescue possibly to the point of becoming uneconomic if the price stays low. Fortescue is getting iron ore out of the ground at teens a tonne. Uh, and so there's so much, in terms of that's a pure cash cost, there is so much leeway for it to keep making money even at materially lower prices. If you want to take a punt on the commodity, if you're already saying, look, I love the iron ore price right now, I think it's at the bottom, I think there's upside to come, then you want to, if you want that risk, 
and you want the maximum upside, you pick something like Mount Gibson. I'm not that kind of guy. I'm happy to take a little bit of upside if I'm right, not too much downside if I'm wrong. So I've chosen Fortescue, but that's how you look at the two of them and, and maybe match them up. If you want that risk, if you're confident, if you like the long-term story, then go with the leverage player because the upside is much lower. Okay. All right. Uh, now, Paul wants a view, uh, uh, Scott, on Fiducian Group, the, uh, the funds management group. It's also uh, in financial planning, uh, run by Indy Singh, who, geez, I've known Indy for about 30 years, I reckon. He was uh, oh, way back in the... Um, 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 uh, back at, I think way back at, even in the Robert Morrison financial planning days. Um, so a long way. Company has no debt, 19 million in cash. Pretty good uh, result in the last quarter. What do you think of Fiducian? Services outside the mainstream banks, generally speaking, because I think there's a really multi-decade tailwind expected for these businesses. If you think about the amount of money going into the super, the boomers are still retiring and the exes, when they start to retire, will be retiring with even more money than the boomers had and even more requirement for funds management, financial planning, wealth management, all the stuff that Fiducian offer. So I really like the space. I like fund management generally as a potential hunting ground. Not every company, not all the time, not any price. But if you want a business with long-term tailwinds, Cochlear is probably the best one I can think of. You think about the, the, you know, the, the massive runway they've got in terms of just ground, grinding out long-term growth over many, many years to come. But funds management is not going to be far behind. I do like the business, as you say, really good set of results, conservatively managed, good quality balance sheet, some cash, no debt. They're, lo they're lovely things you want to see if you're looking for a, a relatively low-risk investment. The one knock on the company is probably its P of about 21 times. Um, not massively higher than the rest of the market. I just talked about that. Now, that's because the market's meaningfully, I would say, elevated, but come back a long way from the COVID crash, of course, of March 2000. So we're in a, we're in a uh, you know, we're, we're in a an aggressive market in the face of potential falling interest rates. Its services aren't going to go away. The need for its services aren't going to go away. It's a really well-run business. I don't think I'd quite get to a buy. I think there are probably better financial businesses out there, funds management businesses, financial planning businesses, if you want that. To some degree, this business's um, uh, diversification is its own worst enemy because you're not going to get the pure upside of a fund manager or the, the roll-up opportunity, for example, of a wealth management business or a financial planning business. But it's a really nice combination. If you wanted something that was a reasonably kind of plain vanilla, pretty diversified financial services business, it's very hard to find a much better one that meet those criteria. I'd probably go for a, a more focused funds manager business, I think. Uh, but I don't hate Fiducian at 21 time zones. Okay. So what, you'd go more... Uh probably have to go hold Koshy. I think I don't think I think right. I want people to buy it, expect to beat the market at the current price is asking too much. Yep. Sure. But I wouldn't sell it if you own it, you're happy with it. it, it the business is delivering financially, it's delivering operationally. So yep. you've got nothing to complain about, but I wouldn't buy it now and expect to beat the market. Okay. Kevin? I have to agree with Scott. Um, it is one that we consider to be a wealth winner at the right price. And uh, emphasis on at the right price. Um, at the moment, it's, it, it, as Scott is saying, it's expensive as far as we're concerned. Um, but it does have very stable growth in earnings and sales, which is really good and, and uh, very conservatively managed, as Scott says. The other aspect about this industry, too, is, of course, uh, that with the Royal Commission a few years ago, all of the large players who had sort of soaked up all the uh, financial planning licenses, or at least most of them, are now shedding those. So right. you've got a yeah. lot wider variety of this type of company to, to have a look at and to manage. 
all of these. So for us, not a buy right now, um, but it is one that is definitely on our radar. Right. So if you had it, would you hold it? Yes, for sure. Right. Okay. Um, Melissa wants to view Kevin on Globe International, the uh, the big uh, skateboard and uh, streetwear, footwear um, apparel group uh, in that younger market. Um, owns um, brands like Globe, Salty Crew, Impala Skate. Uh, what do you think of Globe? This is a really interesting one. It actually mm. came up on our last uh, triage process, our last day, and it wasn't voted in for further uh, further look at it. But having a look at it today, it's, it seems to be a, a Hill family operation by the look of it, established in 1985. And as you say, it's all that younger younger crowd. Um, and certainly all of the measures look very good. The stability of earnings growth is sort of on the low side, but it certainly would still come into our, our um, filters. So it's definitely one that I'm going to have a closer look at. Um, and at a P of, at the moment, I think it, it, the price is reasonably low. It's sort of mid-range P historically. Yep. Um, so I, for me, it would be one that I would do a strategy perhaps of, because I don't know the company really well yet, I would uh, buy a few shares just to get an interest in the thing and then uh, mm. research it a bit further and, and uh, see what, what to do. Okay. Um, but it looks like a very interesting company, perhaps one that someone like Accent Group, it looks like it would be very complementary to their uh, stable of, mm. of brands. Yep. Um, Scott, Globe uh, has really performed pretty well, hasn't it, over the last couple of years? And even though the PE is low, the share price continues to, to rise. Yeah, gosh, yeah, I'm glad Melissa thought, hey, Scott's going to be on the call asking about street fashion and skateboards. That, that's my, my you know, go-to, obviously. She's picked me beautifully. Um, but look, I, you know, I, I agree with Kevin. I, I think there's a lot of value to be had in retail right now, might I have to say. Um, the challenge for investors that we haven't really faced in, well, probably since the last proper recession, the 1990s recession, is how to think about the future of certain businesses, particularly retail businesses, but just COVID-affected businesses generally. I think I might have said this last time around on, on the call. You look at those businesses and say, well, how do I work out what a reasonable base level of sales are pre and post pandemic? This year has been a mess. Last year was a mess. The year before is now two and a half, three years ago. You're in a fashion retail business like Globe and you're kind of thinking, well, hang on, let's fast forward a year. I've kind of now almost three and a half, four years since the last really clean set of numbers I got. How do I look at this business? How do I how do I guesstimate what sort of business they might be doing, the revenue they might be turning over, how, how you know fashionable or otherwise their products are anymore? It's a really, really tough thing to do. And that's, a, that's true across all retail, but fashion retail in particular gets really, really tough. That means I think investors have kind of said, ah, oh, all too hard, I'll leave retail alone, maybe sales fall after a good year, maybe they're still you know, suffering because of lockdowns or people are going back to the shops. I actually think that presents a really, really good opportunity. I've talked about baskets before. I don't know if you bought a basket of retailers that are trading for a P of less than 12 and held it for five years. I'd be surprised if you don't do spectacularly well. When the, when the economy bounces back, when the numbers come in, when people rediscover retail as an investment opportunity, I think the, the PE re-rating alone should do really good things for these businesses. I don't own Globe. I don't know as well as I know some other retailers, but the numbers, as you say, kind of speak for themselves to some degree. I'd be happy to look through some of this. Now, I wouldn't be at all surprised if we see some sales declines in the next nine, 10 months, just as we start to cycle on some really choppy retail sales numbers. I wouldn't be worried about that if I was a Globe shareholder. 
if you're going to buy any retailer, be prepared for that. Don't get scared when they deliver, you know, one or two months of, of yeah. shocking numbers. JB Hi-Fi was down, what, 12%, 14% in the first eight weeks of its new financial year last time we heard from them. So it's going to happen. Um, but it, I like Globe. I think it's well run. It's really cheap right now. And I said, I would happily buy a basket of retailers. Uh, Force give an answer on a single one. I will. This time I'd say it's a buy. I just think you can go past a, a sub 10 PE you know, yep. for a business that's yep. doing a really good job. Yep. Okay. Um, now, Irvin wants a view, Scott, and uh, on Macquarie Group. Now, Irvin, I love this suggestion because, as I said at the top of the show, You've asked a really good question with this. Irvin has two portfolios, his self-managed super fund and a personal one. He's got Macquarie in both of them, had them a long time when they were a lot cheaper. Um, at the current uh, share purchase plan, he's overweight Macquarie. He's got no problems of getting rid of, uh, and he uses a, a team invest term here, capital killers. Um, but what about the winners? Do they... Does the panel share my view that this company will be worth a lot more in five years' time than it is now? Then the question arises, should you let the winners run or should you rebalance your portfolio? It's a cracking question, Irvin, that a lot of investors uh, have to grapple with. Scott, what do you reckon? As we say every week, Koshi, we can't every day. We, day, we can't give specific personal advice, of course. So I can't tell him yep. what he should do with with the shares. But in general, I I tend to believe. Look, here's the thing about Macquarie, right? It's called the Millionaire's Factory for a reason. Its best assets leave the business, leave the building every night, walk in every day, or log on to Zoom in the mornings as we do these days, and, and do their business. They're all trying to make money for themselves and money for the company. And if you've got the smartest people in the country all trying to make money for themselves and the business and therefore shareholders, you'd be a very, very brave person to bet against them. So that, as a starting point, if they, if they can't find a way to make money, then it can, I would almost say the money can't be made, right? These are really smart people, really switched on, really connected. They know what they're doing. They're moving into, they're moving commodities trading. They're moving into asset management. They're moving into green bonds. And, and, you know, they are sniffing out opportunities for some cash to be made. So, yeah, I absolutely think this is a business that's going places and will continue to go places. The limitations will be, to some degree, market opportunity as asset prices go up. There's simply less upside opportunity for any business. But remember, Macquarie is kind of part bank, but it's really almost a it's part, it's part investment bank, part retail bank, part VC fund, really. If you think about what they're trying to do, they're creating structures, they're buying assets. Um, so I like Macquarie for the long term. I think I think they're a really good business. Um, I would say, in terms of the you know watering your, your flowers, not you know, not pulling your weeds rather than vice versa, I would happily let my winners run personally. But you've got to be comfortable with the volatility. So you talk about you bought it at lower prices. If the price was to fall 10%, 20%, 30%, 40%, and you can't hold on because you're like, it's too big, too painful, I can't deal with it, I've got to sell some, then now's the time to have that conversation with yourself and decide whether or not you have too many in your portfolio. I've been overweight to certain positions in the past, Koshi, and just by dint of personality, temperament, maybe just you know, professional experience, I've been able to hang on through those things. And I own corporate travel management shares. I went from $28 to five. Now they're back to 24 or 25 now. That was a pretty harrowing ride for a stock that was overweight, needing to overweight my portfolio. But I'm kind of used to what it sucks. You started out when I, well, this sucks, but, but you know, it'll pass. If you can do that, then I'm a, I'm a big fan of having an overweight position in really high-quality winning companies in your portfolio. Yeah. Personally, yeah. I'd be happy to have Macquarie as an overweight position, but know yourself because if you're not going to be able to keep your, your calm, then you're going to freak out and sell when it gets too painful. You really will cost yourself a lot of money, particularly if they bounce back. So this is one of those yeah. know thyself. All right. That's for Irvin. Would you be buying Macquarie at these levels? 
I would, mate. I think, yeah, I, I do expect it to be a market leader over right. the next five plus years. Um, yep. it, it's just it's just too good a business. The return on the assets is what going to dictate the returns here because they're going to take more money in, try and make a dollar on those assets. I reckon if you're going to back anyone to do it, you back the client. Yep. All right, Kevin, should um, Irvin be worried about being overweight Macquarie and just let it run? And if you're not in Macquarie, is it worth it at these levels? Scott, Scott said, know yourself. Uh, and uh, Kevin, Kevin's uh, rule of investing, number one, is sleep at night. You've got to be able to sleep at night. Otherwise, there's no point. Um, in terms of... Uh, Macquarie, it's interesting the question, I'll, I'll talk about the uh, let, your, let your winners run. We did an exercise about this not long ago with uh, Howard, some of Howard Coleman's investments. Um, Howard, who's been on this yep. program a few times. Yep. And uh, he looked at investments over about a 10-year period, long term. And what he found, in short, was that the ones that did the best continued to do the best. So in other words, he didn't by his whole portfolio performed better if and when, which is what he tends to do just from his temperament, the high quality, well-run companies that you can be depended on for a long, long time, uh, like ARB and like Technology One and so forth, um, if you let them run and not worry about them being overweight, then the portfolio actually did better according to uh, his mm. study. But like Scott says, that depends on having high-quality, well-run companies. Macquarie, uh, for us, Macquarie doesn't meet our filters. The debt's way too high. Um, and the return on capital is lower than our 10%, although the return on equity is is high. Uh, obviously, they're using the debt well to, uh, to get good equity. Um, so it wouldn't be a, generally, most of our members would not consider it to be a buy. Um, Having said that, I had a quick look at uh, five-year past returns. Total returns was 23% per annum. Mm. And the 10-year past returns, if you'd held Macquarie for 10 years, was 26.4% per annum. So if you had held it for those times, uh, you would be generally a happy shareholder, I would imagine. Um, so if that answers the question, I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah. No, no, would, uh, but not at these levels as a new shareholder. Not at these levels as right. a new shareholder. No. But That's let it run. Right. Quality stock. All right, let's uh, recap the first five stock uh, plus our stock of the day, Tech One. Uh, really well-regarded business by the panel, a hold from Scott. Uh, Kevin would be interested in buying more if it got down to, to 9 or $10, which it was back in uh, back in June or July. Uh, Antio Tech, a no from both. Mount Gibson, a no from both. Um, interesting. Uh, Scott bought some Fortescue uh, recently, thinking it's the, the bottom of the, the iron ore market. That's his, his preferred stock there. Fiducian, a hold from both. Globe, a yes from both. Interesting retailer at a, a good value price at the moment. Macquarie, a yes at these levels uh, from Scott. And, but Kevin, a no. Um, here on the call, we've been tracking our own fantasy portfolio since the 1st of July last year, thanks to our partner NAB Trade. And um, any stock that gets two thumbs up, like Globe has got, goes into the portfolio. Think 
having an SMSF is hard? Well, think again. Set up your own SMSF completely online with Stake Super and invest your super with freedom. There's no paperwork and Stake does all the admin. You just focus on the investing. Um, let's take a look at how it's been performing for the week. Uh, down 1%, up 2% for the month, up almost 10% since the 1st of July this year and since the 1st of July last year when we started up almost 50%. Some of the stocks recently added, uh, Atlas Alteria, Virtus Health, Brambles, Capital Health and Ansel. Uh, some of the stocks removed, uh, Southern Cross Media, Magnus Energy Technologies, uh, PWR and Hub24. You can see all the stocks in the calls portfolio. Head to osbiz.co forward slash portfolio and we'll keep updating them as we go along. All right, um, Kevin Ryan wants a view on Avita Medical, a regenerative uh, medical group with um, technology involved in, in burn injuries and trauma injuries, chronic wounds. They're uh, um, they're sort of big product or brand is the, the resell uh, burn uh, procedures, isn't it, as a product? Yes. Yes. And this this is one of those companies that we get uh, every now and then. That, again, it's one of those that I, I, I think, I hope they succeed. I hope they uh, they do um, really well and, and bring that technology on because it's one of those technologies that looks like it'll be uh, certainly beneficial to, to us all. Um, Having said that, of course, from a team invest point of view, they've never made a profit, so uh, we have no way of valuing it. And Scott was talking about this earlier, and I, I quite agree. Uh, know yourself, know what kind of investing you want to do. We don't do that type of investing at Team Invest, um, and if for us, I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with that. You can be successful, but it's kind of venture capital type investing, which requires a different skill set than certainly I've got. Yeah. Um, and as I say, I wish them well. Um, I hope they do well. One thing of note, though, usually usually these companies tend to touch the shareholders for more uh, capital. So the uh, issued shares go up and up. But a few years ago in this company, they came down. So that's interesting. Mm. Okay. All right. Uh, Scott, Avita. Tough one, Koshi. I'm a sucker for a, a potential value play. Now, no one's going to say Avita, which has made a loss every year since inception, is a value play. Uh, but it is a business that you can look at the share price falling and think, can things really be that bad? Is it something that I'm missing, or the market's missing, or both? Um, it does seem reasonable that the share price fall has. You know, I, think, I think investors got way too carried away uh, all those months ago, as you can see from that share price chart. What is interesting most recently is it turned a really good sales result, 39% growth in sales, which is impressive. Uh, the bottom line loss almost halved, which is also pretty good. So you kind of go, okay, well, they're going in the right direction, to Kevin's point. Maybe they get tip into profitability. Maybe they keep going. The big concern in the most recent results about a couple of weeks ago was that their sales growth or sorry, sales quarter on quarter is expected to be flat. There's $7 million of the sales last quarter. The guidance is for the same amount in the current quarter. Now, if you're buying a, a loss-making business with big hopes and big dreams, you kind of can hold the faith as long as you see that top line growing at a meaningful rate. When it's not growing, you start to think, well, hang on, what, what's stopping it here? Is there something fundamentally flawed with the product, the competition, the market, its ability to sell? You know, what's going on? Again, this is one of those stories. You think, well, hang on, if it's a breakthrough technology people love, it should be going through the roof. Why aren't people grabbing it? And yeah. that's the big question for yeah. me. 
in that circumstance, but I can't say it's a buyer. I really kind of want to like it. I do like, as, as Kevin said, we all hope it's successful, right? Because it's great technology. If we see that sales growth kick off again, or if this current quarter starts to become better than maybe it looks right now, you might have another look. Very, very hard for me to say to people that with a loss-making business, go and buy the shares even though they're not growing sequentially quarter on quarter. Again, maybe there's reason, maybe there's justification, maybe just the market being market, uh, in the market for the product, stock market. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, flat, flat growth in a loss-making business, that's a tough one to get behind, so I'm going to have to give it a miss. Okay. All right, Ben wants a view, Scott, on uh, Telstra, the, um, our, our biggest telco, and uh, I th- think Motley Fool had a report this morning on it. I think Goldman Sachs have come out and uh, sort of saying that they're expecting uh, dividends to increase at, at Telstra. For years, it was uh, deemed to be, as team investor would call, a capital killer. But geez, it's turned around the last couple of years. Last year or two has been a bit of a darling under Andy Penn's restructuring program. Share price wise, gosh, it's done spectacularly well. And as you say, Andy Penn has really done a wonderful job. I think I think that was something like 140 discrete IT systems back in the day. Now they're down to a platform about six to eight. Uh, we think about the business size of Telstra, which is a phenomenal result for, for the company. Doing a really good job in the share prices. You can see there, it's doing really well as a result. Uh, the market loving it, you know, three dollars to four dollars. Yeah, it's like a thirty percent gain. Not not as big as some of the other, you know, smaller companies we'll talk about today. But gee, a really really good result. And as you say, that turnaround kind of happening. Long term, not so pretty. Uh, it's been as high as seven or nine dollars in the distant past, and as you see there, um, only only you know five dollars not that long ago. So it depends when you bought it, how you feel about the company. The question for all of us though is what happens moving forward. I think it's possible. I wouldn't say probable yet. Possible that dividend gets increased at some point. It'd be fascinating to see how Andy Penn and his, and his successor think about the business moving forward. Is it going to be a low-growth utility with, with rising dividends? Possibly. They're also trying to make investments in tech, though. They're trying to get into some of those spaces. They're investing in data science, for example. They're hiring a 1,000 data scientists to try and improve the value they add to their business customers. And so does it become or try and become, again, a growth business, in which case you might not get the dividends because they're reinvesting them in growth? That's the open question. I own some Telstra shares, Koshi. Um, I don't actually think it's a buy right now. I own them because one of our income portfolios has the shares. I do like it for income, uh, as we just talked about, but I don't think it's a market beater from here. Mm. Um, so I kind of took out of both sides of my mouth just to justify why I do own the shares, but I'm not suggesting people buy them. Uh, if you own them for income, I think that's great. I would keep them for sure. If you bought them for some sort of recovery over that last 12-month period, I think that you know the jury's in. You've done well. You've made some money. I just don't see how they beat the market from here. Assuming the market growth is something around 10% a year, Telstra's got to do a decent amount of heavy lifting to keep up, let alone surpass that. Yeah. I don't expect it will happen. I expect it will probably be a really nice, solid position. If you own lots of banks and not enough Telstra, there's an opportunity there to go, well, hang on, I'll put some money into something more diversified than just you know two, three, or four big banks. Uh, but I wouldn't buy it for market beating. Okay. Kevin, what's the team invest view on uh, on Telstra? Well, I, like, I agree with Scott. Um, it, it's very big and, and the future is is where it's at. Uh, right now, there's too much debt, so it doesn't pass our filters. And although the interesting thing about this is the stability of growth in earnings, both earnings and sales, the stability in growth is really, really good, very high. Unfortunately, that growth trend over the last few years is negative. Yeah. So okay. it's saying that it's predict- predictably going down according to according to the figures. There was one couple of years ago it went up, but that, that was the exception. Right. So 
uh, it wouldn't wouldn't meet our, fil- our filters. A uh, number of our members have it as a matter of history, like Scott says. Um, and I personally, I wonder how well it's going to do against some of the smaller, very agile, very hungry telcos uh, that are more specialised, like MNF, who's becoming Symbio, and those sorts of companies. Okay. All right. Uh, Finn, Kevin wants a view on the Janice Henderson Group, uh, the big investment manager. Finn wants to know, is this stock a good dividend uh, a good dividend play? Good dividend play. Well, obviously, from a, 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 a team invest point of view, it, it doesn't pass our filters. Um, but in terms of dividend, to answer the question, uh, my short answer is no, I don't believe so. Um, and the reason I say that is if you look at the dividend yield, it's uh, my calculation on the latest price is about 1.7%. And it's unfranked because it's in, you know, all of its assets and so forth and profits are made overseas. Um, so the Morningstar puts the, divid- the uh, dividend ratio at 3%. I suspect that's on past uh, prices. Um, but if you compare that to companies that are in a similar space, so the fund managers, asset managers and so forth, like uh, Magellan, uh, their dividend is 6.1% at the current price. And it's 75% franked. Hmm. Um, Again, if you look at uh, uh, Pinnacle, Pinnacle is another one you could look at. They're 1.6%, so they're sort of in a similar dividend yield, but they're fully franked. So in terms of dividend yield, for me, I would would look elsewhere, personally. All right, and uh, and also does it make your filters for for a buy at these levels? Uh, Scott, what about you? Uh, Is this... Uh, you were saying earlier with Fiducian, there are mm. uh, better managers out there. Is Janice Henderson one of them? This is a really challenging one, Koshi. Um, I, I got the opportunity while Kevin was saying to have a look at the numbers. Uh, Kevin, it turns out these guys pay quarterly dividends, so we've got to add the, uh, the four together, and that's when they get to the six from your one and a half, mate, just so you know. Um, just for, for our viewers, I had the opportunity of cheating while you were on screen. Um, <laughs> it, look, it, it's, it's a... It's a Decent company, Koshi. It's one of those businesses that has been really choppy when it comes to profitability. And if you're looking for stability, if you're looking for a dividend play, you kind of want to go, well, hang on, I want, I want something that's a bit more stable than that. You know, I want some growth. On the flip side, while the dividend's only 3% and Kevin Dodd's unfranked, and that's a meaningful difference, right? You could pay, you get, you know, four and a bit, um, uh, you know, effectively with a franked dividend at the same rate of that 3% originally. So you've got to do overs out of a non-Australian-based business to, to really get your income that you're looking for. Um, but it's a P of 13 times. And it's one of those things, that, again, everything I've said about fund managers, like if I say, okay, well, that's all true. Now, Janice has 13 times, Peter Magella at a much higher level, where do you want to go? I, I'm really, really tempted. I think that the challenge with fund managers in, so that over you know a decade plus, I think the trend is really, really positive. In the shorter terms, fund flows matter massively, as, as you viewers will well know. The, the fund managers make money on the percentage of the funds they manage, plus any performance fees on top of that. If the funds you manage are declining, you simply make less money. There is no there is no option, right? It's almost having less inventory in the shop compared to a retail. If you only sell so much inventory, you sell less of it, you're going to make less money. It's, it's almost inevitably the case. And it's really, really tough for someone like Janice to look at that and go, what does the future look like? 
when you see like Magellan's been growing for years, you go, okay, well, I think I know that story. But again, if you follow Platinum for a bit longer than that, you also know when the sales go the other way, yeah. when funds start getting yeah. withdrawn rather than put in, it really can hurt the business. So I like Janice. I'm going to say it's a buy, mate, on the balance of probabilities again at a PE under 13. Um, I think it's probable that the average fund manager on PE of 13 over the next five or 10 years that manages to beat the market. You just got to be a little bit careful. It's probably a higher risk one because of that volatility. They don't seem to have got their ducks in a row just yet, and the price up fifty percent by the way over the last twelve months or so. So mm. it's not exactly you know doing it doing it tough share price wise, but the PE is still reasonably low. As long as it can keep going, as long as it doesn't lose significant mandates, I think it's a market leader from here. Yeah, that's a good yeah. double though. Is that when the PE stays low and the share price goes up, it means it's actually yes. yeah. delivering on its on its expectations. Um, correct, correct. Uh, Shell wants a view, Scott, on uh, CSL. The everyone CSL came to everyone's attention who's not in the investment markets when they started producing AstraZeneca. But hey, their business is in blood plasmas uh, around mm-hmm. the world. One of one of our great medical technology companies that's ever been produced out of this country, isn't it? Astonishing, mate. In the in the in the pantheon of, of great Australian well-being companies, CSL is in the top echelon without yep. question. Done a remarkable job of growing from the Commonwealth Serum Laboratory, literally a government department back in the day, uh, to being the, the, the behemoth that it is today. A really, really sensational result. And it's in the right industry doing really good things, getting really nice growth. If I've got a concern with CSL as an investment, it's the sheer size. If you think about, if you're a small business and you want to, you're a cafe and you want to, you want to grow a little bit, selling extra two copies a day probably is enough for a five or ten percent growth, not literally, but you know what I mean. If you own a, if, if you're McDonald's, opening other stores is not going to make any difference to your business. If you're CSL and you want to get growth year on year, you've got to add billions of dollars worth of value, market value that is, to your balance sheet via the sales and, and profit growth every single year, and that gets harder and harder every single year. So you're on that treadmill, and the treadmill kind of, you know, to tell to the analogy, the incline gets higher and higher every year just to stay still, and you've got to keep delivering. Thus far, CSL's done a pretty good job. Uh, the P is not stupidly high, but it's not great at 45 times. I just, I, I don't know, it, it, takes a, it takes a lot of belief to look out, say, three, five years and compound the amount of dollar growth it's going to have to get, not only just to stay still, but to actually grow uh, year on year for the next three to five years yeah. to justify it being that high. I just can't, I'm not saying it won't. This is one of those situations where it's very, very hard to know what they're working on, what the business might look like. You buy it on faith, you buy it on track record. I wouldn't criticize anybody for doing it. But if you didn't know it from Adam and you said, here's this business, it's 45 times earnings. And by the way, it's going to add billions of dollars every single year in incremental market value to grow at the market rate. That's a really, really tough thing to do. We've seen what happens with the banks. When you can't do that, the banks are Westpac, I think it's cheaper yeah. than it was five years ago. Um, if you can't get growth, I just don't like CSL current PE. 30 right. times, 32 right. times, you, you've got me. 45, just too much. Yeah, well, it wasn't that long ago uh, in what, from that chart there, March, April, down at 200, 247. So you bought the dips. Uh, Kevin, this has been uh, a team invest, uh, sort of, as you put it, wealth went up for, for years, has it? It has, yes, indeed. And... Uh, yes, I agree. Uh, and I have to agree with Scott. Uh, right now, now it's overpriced. It, it, it meets all our filters. It's got great stability of growth. And at this stage, certainly historically up till now, it's got good solid growth. Um, and they've got a, a team, an excellent team running the business. Um, but as Scott says, uh, for us at these prices, it's very difficult to justify. We, we'd be waiting for 
something something to happen either in the market or uh, some uh, bad news that is not going to have a substantial effect on the company, but uh, the share market perceives as being worse than it is um, to to buy some shares at a, at a lower PE ratio. Okay, yeah, I think um, Howard had CSL as his stock to buy on a share market crash. Uh, you just yes, load up absolutely. on that. Um, Kevin, our final stock, Henry wants a view on uh, New Hope, the uh, the big listed uh, coal company um, uh, in Queensland. Yeah, well, our um, again, it doesn't meet our filters. Uh, the return on capital is low, 4.5. Return on equity is 4.9. Um, so... And the stability of earnings is very, very low. So the earnings are all over the place. Um, so it wouldn't meet our filters. It is very much a coal play. Um, yeah. And from that point of view, I think it would be out of favour with a lot of investors, which if you're prepared to invest in coal, uh, you know, may present some opportunities if you want to do that. Uh, because when something goes out of favour, the PE goes down and the price goes down, as you can see has been happening from that chart there. I suspect uh, coal, even with renewables coming on, coal will be around for uh, quite a number of years, so it may well present some opportunities. But for us right now, it doesn't it doesn't meet our filters. Okay, Scott, um, coal, global coal prices record levels uh, up until very recently. The, the earnings of this, if you saw an earnings chart of New Hope, it's all over the place. And it's literally just because of the commodity price. New Hope is, I think, it's fair to say, the best coal company in terms of the best run coal company in the country. Uh, they do a fantastic job, really good capital allocators, got a great long-term track record. But you have to look over that long-term because year by year, it looks like either a basket case or the best business you've ever heard of. Right now, it's the latter, as you say, because of those high coal prices. P is something like six-odd times um, future – oh, sorry, the current year earning estimates. Now, no one expects the coal price to remain that high, or at least no one I've seen. Uh, and I think it would be a very, very, very ambitious thing, like coal, iron ore, and 220 bucks a tonne, right? When it's that high, you kind of go, okay, well, we know – what happens? We know what cyclical commodities do. They behave cyclically, right? There's going to be there's going to be higher prices and lower prices at different times. You got to look yeah. through the cycle and say, is this a good price? To Kevin's point, I really I, look. You know, you got you can you have the climate change, yeah, you know, political conversation, ideological conversation, philosophical conversation. Knock yourself out. My biggest concern is you don't know what that impact is going to be on the business itself from a policy perspective. Once governments start to behave differently, whether there is import um, taxes being placed at, at borders on carbon, for example, and coal, of course, one of the more uh, damaging fuels when it comes to that. Now, there is better coal and worse coal, and a lot of New Hope is actually the good stuff or the better stuff, I should say. Uh, so that's great. Uh, but the question is how much of it gets left in the ground, if any. Maybe it's all of it. Maybe it's none of it. Maybe it's somewhere in between. But you're dealing with that sort of existential company threat. Again, putting aside the climate-specific stuff, just literally, if the government at some point says, no, nah, you're living on the ground, you're done then at some point you're going to wonder what price do I get for that asset? And if you're racing against what's effectively a burning platform, if that's the case, it's just too risky for me. There is a non-zero chance of a complete wipeout. Now, that being said, I own shares in Sol Pattinson who own a meaningful chunk. I think it's still 60% of New Hope. So I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth again. I'm happy to believe the Milners will do the right thing when they see the writing on the wall, if they do. And so I'm actually happy owning my Sol Pat shares with that New Hope shareholding. 
but I wouldn't be buying it myself. And I just don't think, again, there's just there's easier options in the market, right? You don't have to take a position on trying to guess what climate change policy might look like in two, five, and 10 years. If you just don't know, just give it a minute. Just literally leave it alone and say, someone else can play that game. I'm not going to play it. That's my approach to New Hope. Okay. All right. Uh, thank you for that, uh, Henry. And uh, thank you to Scott Phillips from Motley Fool. Uh, great to see you, mate. Appreciate your time. Thanks, Josh. And get Kevin Roberts uh, back to... Uh, Back to moving, uh, Kevin Robinson from uh, <laughs> Team Invest. You've, you've slacked off for an hour and uh, you can get back to unpacking boxes. Good idea. <coughs> Good to see you both. All right, let's just recap the final five stocks. Uh, Avita Medical, a no um, from both. Telstra, a no from both. It's a, it's a hold from Scott if you're interested in uh, as part of your income portfolio. Janice Henderson, a buy from Scott, a no from Kevin. No from both on CSL, just to higher price at the moment, and New Hope, a no as well. Now, if you've got any stocks you'd like us to look at here on the call, put them in an email to us, the call at ausbiz.com.au, or tweet us using the at ausbiztv um, handle. We love all your comments and questions attached to each of the stocks as well. Uh, if uh, you want to see all the stocks in the Calls Fantasy portfolio, head to osbiz.co forward slash portfolio. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.